Welcome to the second series of Ethics for Advisors. I'm Matthew Smith, and I'm Head of Retail Content at Conexus and Editor of Professional Planner. In this latest series, we have engaged ethics experts and practitioners to talk through real-life ethical scenarios advisors encounter in their everyday professional lives with a focus on how advisors and practice owners are implementing ethical practices in their businesses. How individuals act or react when faced with an ethical dilemma will come down to a combination of factors including their backgrounds, experiences, education, situational and environmental factors. We've asked advisors, you guys out there, to submit real-life ethical scenarios you may have faced, both client-facing and dilemmas relating to employment structures or situations with the intention of unpacking these in light of FASIA's Code of Ethics. This podcast is proudly brought to you by IOOF Advice, who are committed to delivering leading professional development programs. I'm joined today by John Skukovic, Director and Principal Advisor at Park Lane Advice Group based in Melbourne and Michelle Cull, Associate Dean, Engagement and Senior Lecturer in the Accounting and Financial Planning at the School of Business at Western Sydney University. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Matt. Good afternoon, Matt. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to have you both. Um, Look, really looking forward to this conversation. Um, One of the interesting things I found Um, you know, relating to ethics and advice is how it's being interwoven into the business models and into the learning and advice process at the various institutions and and businesses. And uh, in the planning calls for this conversations, I think what stood out most for me was your respective perspectives on how this is happening, both from a kind of a practical and academic perspective. So really interested in in kind of getting in and and learning a little bit about um, from both of your experiences there. Um, I, I might just kick off with you, John, like a little bit about your your journey, your, a bit about your business and your journey into advice. Yeah, thanks. Um, my, um, my background, I've been in financial planning now as an industry for, for nearly 14 years. Um, started in a small practice uh, 14 years ago as a, as a paraplanner, um, went to more of a large organisation with ANZ Financial Planning as a paraplanner. Um, did a lot of back office roles there, um, moved into compliance and audit roles um, with ANZ Financial Planning, um, which was was linked with the the, uh, the one-path dealer group at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was doing a lot of audits and, and uh, compliance for, for the open market and for the ANZ Financial Planning. Um, and that, that was a very interesting time of, of, of my, my career, um, going out, doing audits. We've had, had some audits that were, were, were talked to and, and were referred to as in the, uh, in the Royal Commission. Mm. Um, then moved into to a practice manager role. So I looked after uh, a number of teams through a, a two to three year period um, around Bayside, uh, Northern Victoria, Tasmania. Um, looking after teams of, of financial planners with ANZ Financial Planning. Hmm. And then uh, last year, uh, myself and uh, three colleagues from ANZ, we decided to, to make the move and go into our own own practice and, and set up our own our own financial planning practice with a, with a mortgage broken arm as well. Yeah. What was your experience during the Royal Commission? Is there anything you can kind of speak about, uh, you know, in terms of what the, the, the case studies were or even just your, your general kind of takeaway uh, following, you've had a couple of years to reflect on it now? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was an interesting time um, and a lot of the cases that we did see and, and that were referred to, again, mm-hmm. that was what we were seeing 
in our in our you know in our findings um the one the one case particular where it sort of my files were were looked through it, it mm. was it was very you know it was it was something that um obviously there was a, the, there were issues in the industry and, and and that that case in particular was was something that um you know with lack of documentation lack of evidence in of of how the the advice was derived a lack of i guess knowing your client um, and again, there was uh, when in speaking to advisors and, and going through audits, it was never a case of that the client, the planner didn't know the client or, or know the um, you know the history or the really understand their client's needs. It was really around that documentation of, of those needs and, and making sure that that evidence was on file. Okay. Um, so for, suffice to say that um, the you know in your new licensee and uh, your your new incarnation. Um, that uh, documentation is um, is uh, quite good. There is that yeah, something you focused yeah. on? <laughs> yes, I, I hope so. Um, it's probably one of our areas that we're really focused on, and, and it's, it's mm. an area of um, again the, the the colleagues that I did did um, that we did start this business with. You know that that was one of our I, I guess our consistent sort of strengths was to make sure that we were you know our compliance background um, and our you know how we want to operate and, and the processes that we want to develop were really strong before we even started before we even saw clients hmm. um, we had good processes and a good understanding of what we were looking to achieve yeah so look really interested in digging further into you know that intersection between ethics and then compliance and documentation, and um, and I think that'll be a really fascinating and interesting um, aspect to the conversation. Uh, now, Michelle, since last we spoke, you've you know you've got a new new title and uh, associate dean at uh, the university. So congratulations on that. And w- what does that entail? And what what have you been working on mostly? Okay, so the associate dean engagement role involves a number of different engagement activities, I suppose, and in trying to achieve our school's mission. And so it might mean working with local high schools mm-hmm. through to uh, different industries, both for-profit and not-for-profit and community organisations, local government, state government, and uh, trying to improve the, the students, I suppose, understanding of the real world as well. So in making those connections, having students placed in industry for internships or working on projects that uh, are solving real-world problems yeah. as well. Also, since we last spoke, you've um, you've um, worked on a, a book on, you know, in relation to advice and, and ethics. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Yes, thank you. Um, ethics and Professional Practice in Financial Planning is the name of the book hmm. and um, it's being printed as we speak. So it was a bit of my COVID um, work hmm. <laughs> while we were in lockdown. And um, what we've tried to do in the book is, is cover both the theory, the code, but also um, professional practice and I think a lot of the things that John was talking about in terms of compliance, mm. keeping the right records and um, what processes you undertake to ensure that you're complying with um, not just the code but you know, the, the highest standards possible. But we've also incorporated a number of cases and, and real-life examples so that it, it brings that theory and, and the code to life. So it's not just sitting there on its own. So we've really tried um, as best we can to, to integrate that and provide a lot of financial planning scenarios for yep. the users of the textbook. So yeah. um, we've had a financial planner um, write some of the chapters, which has been really good, uh, Michael Miller, and another academic, Aaron Brune, who's um, also an, an actuary, and I've got um, one chapter we've written about the professional associations that my PhD student 
um, Sheila Skalterty has also assisted with. Great, and I'm sure it's uh, it'll be um, you know very interesting for our listeners as well. So grab a copy of that book. Uh, but uh, yeah, John, you must have you know in your advice cases and documentation. You know, wh- where do advisors usually go wrong? And you know, and on on the flip side, what do they what what do they tend to do really well? Well, I think yeah, one of the the, the main areas we find that that and again one of the most challenging areas is is around just documenting the, the alternative strategies that okay. we um, the research that goes along with that um, how far do you go with with the alternatives that are considered um, we document that obviously in our, our advice documents or our statements of advice but again it's 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 the work that goes on behind the scenes um, bef- before it even gets to a, a statement of advice that you really need to spend that time um, with the the alternatives that you have considered so um, you know that that's where we saw a lot of financial I saw a lot of financial advisors breaking down that's where I spend a lot of my time um, when I'm you know when I'm creating a file and working with a client um, that's that's sort of the, the biggest area um, that we do spend a lot of our time yeah it's, it's interesting uh, standard six in the conversations that I've been having recently comes up quite regularly um, relating to the, the kind of the, the broader effects arising from clients acting on advice. I think that has some implication on the consideration of alternatives as well. Is that a standard that you're familiar familiar with and have thought about or um, uh, is there any other standards that kind of more relate to, to what you're talking about there? Well, that, that is definitely a standard that, that yeah, again, we're referring to when we talk to about alternatives and, and again, the impacts that that can have on, on your advice. You know, your, your advice and the decisions you make um, in one area can, can, can definitely impact other areas. There's, um, there's, there's so many crossovers with, with strategies and, and even, you know, types of products that we do, you know, solutions that we give to clients that can have impacts down, you know, in other areas. So, that's that's the consideration that does take so much time. Is that you need to to go through and, and actually take a step back. Each client, each client's different. You know, I have similar clients in similar circumstances, and then you look at the mm. the outcomes, and and they are still mm. completely different because of just one little you know one little nuance or one little area that that the client wants to focus on. So. Um, you know, the, the, that's where all that time time is. And, again, it's the documentation. So I think that sort of flows more into to standard eight and having that, okay. you know, that um, documentation, accurate documentation yep. on file um, yeah, is, is where the time is taken. Kind of hard to standardise advice process or, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm interested in your thoughts. I mean, is it, you know, quite hard to, you mentioned, you know, all the different nuances that come into all the different directions you can take, you know, with the advice that you give, it kind of makes it hard to to really standardise and um, and scale um, from a compliance perspective this yeah, advice. We, we, we do find that. It is very hard to, to standardise. And, again, our biggest our biggest sort of learnings and our biggest, you know, takeout from our business is to, to – to at least have a, a process that's defined that we can track and we mm. can always come back to, whether it's you know a, a step in our process that means that we 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 tick it off. But you know it, again, there can be different documentations or different research that goes into that step. 
Um, but as long as we've got that step there, I guess that's the, the, the level that we need to standardise it to. But, yeah, then the, the flow on to that is that, yeah, the time it takes to go and do the research and then, yeah, document that is is where it can – it's very hard to standardise that with different clients, obviously. Yeah, look, um, Michelle, give me a little window into the way that, you know, ethics is being taught now in, um, in financial planning courses and, and perhaps accounting courses. Well, uh, even before the – FASIA Code of Ethics, we also had the um, Financial Planning Education Council that accredited financial planning courses and there was ethics requirements back then and I actually wrote a paper where we did an analysis of all of the accredited programs and how many units um, ethics was incorporated into. So there's a a number of different ways that ethics Mm. can be taught in courses. Mm. So it could be taught as a standalone unit where you have like the one ethics unit uh, that covers the code of ethics, for example, and all ethical behaviour and obligations and standards and all of that. Or, of course, you can integrate it across the curriculum where you have, you know, decisions and scenarios in different units that that apply ethical behaviour. So um, that sort of, I don't think that that has changed too much Mm -hmm. other than the fact that now there's the bridging unit required for postgraduate study for those financial planners that may have already done the, you know, met the right qualifications. Yeah. So that's changed the way that maybe some some postgraduate programs are structured in that there is now that separate unit. But, of course, if you can have both, that's, that's the best mm. because you've got your standalone unit where you can really get, um, in, you know, pull, pull apart the code of ethics and get really involved in um, what's involved in those financial decisions. But also having a look at in each other unit how you would apply the code. Hmm. So I think by having it integrated, then students, Hmm. it it becomes a habit. It's Hmm. just second nature to students rather than having something that's just separate. How how are you finding your ongoing learning and application, John, of um, of ethics? I mean, is it case by case? Do you kind of, you know, as a team kind of pick apart some of some of the curlier things you might come across or is it just something that you ponder, you know, late at night or early in the morning um, on your own? How does that work? Yeah, no, I, I don't think uh, in, in today's world, with, especially with financial planning, that you can ever just go go on your own. Hmm. Um, you know, so we as a team, we do a weekly call. We okay. do a weekly job. Um, we, we do discuss cases. Um, we do work very closely together with our cases. So... Um, if there's anything that's not, you know, not that, you know, that we, we do need support on, we, we, we reach out to each other as, as a practice. Um, and we, we always draw on, on all the, the support and the, the experience that we have, whether that's through a product provider, through our technical team, through our compliance team. Um, there's, there's, you know, there's so many avenues that we have um, that we, we do work together with when, when we get into that space. We're going to move on to the ethical scenarios now. Firstly, thanks to listeners and readers of Professional Planner for submitting scenarios that we've used for this series. If you'd like to submit your own ethical scenarios to be in the next series, please do so through the Professional Planner website or email me directly. You can also earn CPD points from this episode. All you have to do is follow the link from the Professional Planner homepage or visit professionalplanner.com.au slash education and answer the questions relevant to the episode. This podcast is proudly brought to you by IOOF Advice, who are committed to delivering leading professional development programs. 
We've got a couple of interesting scenarios here. So the first one, we have a practice that works across many generations within one family. We're able to get deep relationships with individuals through the family tree and the res- and this results in good outcomes, particularly as family referrals open up strong and immediate bonds. When dealing with multiple generations of one family, particularly immediate family, it's clear that advice is appropriate and tax effective for one generation may not be as beneficial for the next. This is particularly true when it comes to wealth transfers, selling of family homes and moving of elderly parents into a uh, retirement village. It gets tricky when you begin trading off outcomes between the outcome of a sale of a property, the impact that might have on, on aged pension government benefits for the parents and also the size of the inheritance for the children. Is my client base too intertwined with multiple generations? I always thought this was an advantage in knowing and understanding client needs better, but maybe I was wrong. So there's no actually specific example, but I think this individual has really um, maybe come to terms with the code and really thought about the client base and thought, wow, there's probably a few scenarios that I'm, you know, involved in that I might, um, you know, need to remove myself from. Um, I might go to you, Michelle, first. What what are your top line thoughts on this one? Well, I'm wondering if maybe um, the advisor is concerned with conflict of interest. That's what it sounds like Mm. um, from from the scenario there. But there's so many different aspects of the code that this touches on too. So I think I would probably first up go with um, client care under standards four, five, and six. So particularly standard five, um, when we're considering the situation that an advisor might find themselves in with the, the you know multi generational clients, um, if you were to advise in this case um, those the, the generation of the family where they're looking at retiring the elderly parents, for example, hmm. uh, I suppose the first thing would be in providing that advice to the elderly clients, regardless of whether you had their children as your clients as well, you would expect that all of the recommendations that you give to those elderly clients would be in the best interests of them and appropriate to their client, their, those clients' individual circumstances. But also I think John um, mentioned um, earlier just that when you're considering all the different alternatives I think this is really important in explaining them to the client that, you know, that these are the options that you have, but this is how they will affect you and this is the impact that it will have on what you're leaving to your children. I think if you can make that really clear to the, the elderly clients so that they know that impact. Um, but if you, I suppose as an advisor, if you feel that you are conflicted because you have strong bonds to the children, and if you're feeling that that's impacting the advice that you're giving, well, then maybe you need to consider only having one as, as your client and, and not the other. But uh, I think in the very first instance, regardless of having um, the multi-generational client aspect, you need to ensure that you are proposing all alternatives to those clients and the risks yep. and the benefits that are involved. Yeah, I and might leave it there and let John, I have got a bit more to say, but I'll, I'll leave, leave it to John. I'd like to hear um, how he sees Yeah, no, definitely. Okay, okay, John, I'm interested in your thoughts here. Yeah, I completely agree there with Michelle. I think that, and she touched on the, the, the biggest point that we focus on, we, we see this a, a fair bit with our, our client base, mm-hmm. we, we, with a, 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 an elderly client base, and, and we have seen a lot of referrals come through um, from family members 
Um, yeah, and I guess the biggest thing when we've seen this from a, um, yeah, I've got one scenario right now where it's a, it's a tax, yeah, there's, there's some tax detriment um, to one of the clients. We've worked together and we've split the clients. So again, I've, I've worked with one party. Um, a colleague has worked with another party uh, or the other the other party and, and we've actually then had joint meetings but then been able to, to I guess, put all the, the scenarios on the table um, all the, you know, the, the alternatives that we've considered, um, but then ultimately our advice has, has sort of been separate in the, in the degree that we've, we've each had our own clients. So the clients are aware of, of the, the, you know, the, the scenarios and the alternatives, and then we've obviously then moved in our own direction where we've actually given our individual advice to each of the, the clients separately. Um, so it is something that we, we focus on. That's why we've set up as a, as a team. I know this is not a solution for, yeah, you know, your, your single operator financial planners out there, but yeah, you know, that's that's kind of one of the focuses we had when we were setting up. Yeah, Michelle, any further thoughts um, after hearing on John's perspective? Uh, I think I think we're fairly probably on the same yeah. page, but of course, I mean, we're, there's already always so many different ways you can deal with any scenario. So, so this is one way that we see. It yeah. No, of course. I mean, often you know, usually I. I mean, I think of these things in abstract, right? Because I'm, you know, I'm not really in the industry, but I often I think of conflicts as, you know, conflicted payments or, or conflicts in another way. This is a conflict, um, you know, having two clients. And I just wonder if um, choosing to, you know, continue to, um, you know, continue to, to advise both clients, whether that's enough you know, being aware of the conflict is enough because sometimes, you know, when it comes to conflicted payments, you know, you have to remove yourself from that situation. Is this a different type of conflict? That's right. That's mm -hmm. right. And I think in some situations that might be what has to happen. It's very hard to know, um, you know, all of the detail just looking at a scenario. There are so many different variables. Yeah. So, um, but I think that's one, one aspect that would need to be considered. But also what's... Uh, by having the keeping both clients, you also know your clients very well, and uh, yeah, it, it's a, it's definitely a hard one. But if you really feel that you can't remove yourself from that situation and advise each separately, I think you do have to to maybe to give one up, and you also have to look at standard five in terms of looking at the longer, at the long, you know, the much longer term impact of your advice as well and how are you going to document if you keep both clients how are you going to document that you have actually provided all of that information all of the alternatives and you haven't allowed any conflict in that case yeah let me just um before we move on to the next one i mean i think the essence of the question is saying almost the way in which i've built my business um is is in this multi or intergenerational way and I saw that as an advantage because it really means I know the families and the clients uh, really deeply and well. And now this, there's this seems to be a realisation from this individual that, well, actually the whole way that I've built my business seems to be perhaps giving, you know, um, making it more challenging to be able to, you know, ethically act. Is that kind of how you see it a little bit? John or yeah yeah I, I I do see see that and I guess that that does bring up that question um, and 
Um, like I said, it's, it, it is a, a real tough one. Um, and, and, and like Michelle sort of touched on, you know, you've got to, you've got to understand the, the flow on of your advice and, and make sure that you've documented that, um, you know, for, for the future generations. But um, I'm with you that, yeah, and with this, this, um, this scenario that, again, if, if you understand your client's needs and you have that really, really deep understanding of the relationships, um, that can only be a good thing. Um, you know, I guess we can, yeah, the, the solutions that I guess you can work around with it, but that, that has to be a good thing when you provide an advice and setting up your business. Yeah. Yeah, great. I think that that's where you're weighing up the benefits and the risks, isn't it? Hmm. Definitely. And, and going back to the main values that underpin the code as well, if you're being honest, fair, you're confident in what you do, you know, there's all those other things to consider hmm. uh, along the way. Yeah, good one. Okay, number two, um, I've enjoyed going to our yearly dealer conferences over the years and have always learned a lot from the technical specialists and portfolio managers who have presented there. I've never really given much thought to the funding of these events. Since I have joined a smaller uh, licensee, these events have become even more focused and targeted on supporting our business and they generate CPD points I need for my ongoing compliance and continuing education requirements. The more I contemplate the guidelines relating to conflicts, the more I wonder how much, as an advisor, I'm implicated in being inadvertently conflicted by deals and activities at the licensee level I'm not involved in. The events are one thing. These events are clearly still funded by product providers, and though they're not as overt as though they're not as overt in the past, what if these arrangements are just the tip of the iceberg? How can I be across every financial arrangement relating to my licensee in order to remain conflict-free? Um, I thought that was quite an interesting one. John, do you want to have a crack at this one first? Yeah, well, I mean, this is an interesting one. Um, I guess from a licensee level, you know, we can, we've got to, you know, you, you pick your licensee and you've got to have faith and, and, and um, you know, I guess confidence that you know that that they are they are doing the right thing again. That's that was one of the big drivers for us setting up our business to go with with a licensee that we we knew and we trusted. Um, you know the, the the conflict there with product providers and and seminars and um, you know again maybe a little bit different to this, but you know not not directly through a licensee, but we, we get invitations nearly weekly from product providers to go to, to mm. event and you know that they're, they're funded, um, you know that they're there to, to, to yeah, there's a there's an element of conflict there with, with sort of the arrangements they put on. Um, yeah, for us, we we, we, uh, we remove ourselves from, from anything that we feel like, yeah, that we're not comfortable with. Our, our number one priority when we deal with with um with any sort of CPD or, or technical sessions or product sessions is really just making sure that we're dealing with a, a provider that can give us uh, a better understanding or better better outcomes for our clients and 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 something that that helps us become more client focused um, and and um, yeah drives better solutions for our clients. But it's it's a very tough one to to really feel comfortable with with the amount of um, I guess the amount of amount of funding that goes out there with product providers and the like. Yeah. And uh, and this individual has obviously um, seen the changes and, and to be fair, has, you know, has noted that they've become more professional and there's a lot more, um, you know, continuing education activity associated with these than perhaps they were in the past. Um, but still, to your point, there's that little inadvertent 
um, you know, sales pitch, perhaps, you know, in the sting of the of yeah. of what they're delivering, just given by the nature of them even being present. Um, you know, so I think that's I mean, let's kind of kind of mull on that further and Michelle, interested in your thoughts. Yeah, this one this one's really difficult because there is that indirect side of things where the advisor themselves are not doing those negotiations mm. and this is how I'm perceiving the scenario, that they're asked to attend these professional development events and so forth. But I suppose you've got to look at uh, are they getting real value out of the events? Are they feeling any kind of undue pressure to um, be involved with the the fund that's sponsoring the events, for example, if they're feeling some sort of pressure there, then I think that's a flag that maybe there's something not mm. quite right. Mm. Uh, but I, I think the licensees also have their own obligations and the advisor's not going to be across every single agreement uh, that's made by the, the licensee and they can't be. But I think if they're feeling that there's any sort of pressure there for them to perform in a certain way or use certain products or anything like that, of course, um, that's where there becomes a big issue and and it would be up to the advisor then to to raise that with their licensee going yeah. forward. Yeah. And, I mean, from a code of ethics perspective, I mean, what is it, where are some of the places that on relating to the code of ethics this would evoke? Well, I think, well, uh, definitely... If you do feel that there is some sort of pressure, then, you know, we've got the standard 12 there about individually in, in cooperation with your peers to uphold and promote the ethical standards and hold each other accountable. Mm. So I think that's definitely um, important here. Uh, then, of course, we've got the if there are any perceived conflicts, um, is there anything that's actually preventing you from giving advice that's in the best interests of the client? So uh, if, that, if there was anything that... I suppose uh, meant that you were not able to follow those standards. Then, then that's not going to be the right thing to do. Hmm. Um, because and, and what are the consequences? Looking at that, who, who does it affect? What are the consequences if, of hmm. having these people done them? If there is no other pressure, if you are, as John said, if you're getting real value out of it and you're able to improve uh, the quality of your advice to clients, well, then that that's great. But if not, if there is some other pressure there, then maybe it's good to not be involved and exclude yourself from that. Hmm. Yeah, and, and the ongoing, sorry, just to jump in, but the ongoing, you know, development there, you know, we, we, we actually focus outside of product providers and, and sessions. We do a lot of our own internal um, CPD stuff through, you know, through providers, you know, like, like Kaplan and the like. So that's where... We, we we don't rely on those sessions as such to do the 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 uh, the CPD or the ongoing um, development. Yeah, you know, we, we sort of focus elsewhere, and they're they're the extra sessions that we do if we really feel comfortable there. Then that's where we we go to those sessions. Yeah, great. And I I think you know just from an observer's perspective, I mean, you know this industry, the advice industry in order, you know, as it progresses will be part of an ecosystem, you know, and it needs to rely on that ecosystem to deliver advice, you know. I don't think that, um, you know, in order to get, as they say, quality advice to more Australians, you know, it's got to be funded some way and I think um, there's a lot that goes into the creation of that advice, you know. So I think... Um, 
Um, I think this will be something that is continuing to, um, you know, be a question in advisors' minds as, you know, more product providers and platform providers and other people within the ecosystem need to come in and 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 be partners with advisors, you know, in order to continue to 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 this professional journey. Yes, and I think the funding that is is an interesting one because even if I mean John mentioned using like a tertiary provider uh, to deliver courses, but who's paying for the courses? Yeah, and that could also flag another concern in that: Do you have to disclose those benefits to your clients? If you do, you need to value how much that education is going to be worth if it's being provided by anybody. Yeah. Whether it's an education provider or a platform provider. Yeah. Okay, great. Look, um, number three and final one, and this has been a great conversation, so thanks so much um, for, for all your thinking here. Um, this one, you know, in a world where, you know, self-regulation and, um, and also a compliance system where, um, you know, I think um, the, the latest on the compliance system is that, um, you know, licensees have to, um, self-report as well. You know, I think, you know, all those things come into the, the nature of this particular one. So a former colleague decided to become self-licensed a year and a half ago, taking his client base and now operates his own license. His practice is more or less the same as it was before, but I know they're not investing in compliance. Um, a lot of the systems and templates they've been using are adapted from what um, we were provided by a much larger and well-resourced licensee. We're all supposed to be accountable to each other. What's my best approach if I believe my former colleague's compliance is not up to scratch? Dob him in? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the number one thing that we've, uh, yeah, again, I've, I've probably had a bit of guidance here when, when uh, as a practice manager and I had advisors go out into their own either self-licence or or you know, um, outside of of um, you know the the bank, um, the the bank channel, and and again, it was always that you know, I guess that ultimately we need to be able to be comfortable with the advice. You need to be able to to make sure again, it's it's you need to be able to sleep at night. You, you need to make sure that your clients are, are well looked after, and 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 without without um, I guess investing in compliance and process. Um, you either sort of go down one or two channels, it, 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 you won't get the, the right outcomes for your clients or you'll end up just having um, really big gaps in your advice process, which means that you, you know, when it comes to how confident you are in what you're giving to your clients, that you'll, um, you, you just won't be able to sleep at night, I guess. You want to be able to be comfortable with your advice. Uh, and again, it can also speed up your advice. You know, we, we talked about documentation earlier on and and making sure we've got all that on file. If we don't have process and and, and investing in in that that um, in compliance, and you're not you're not really um, you're not you, you get it'll ultimately slow you down is, is sort of our view um, with this. So yeah, again, dobbing him in or or coaching or educating. Um, <laughs> I still get a lot of planners call me up for for my thoughts and feedback outside of our mm. business. Um, yeah, that, that's step one. And then I guess if, if you feel like there's a real concern for clients' needs, then I guess that there is that channel of obviously, um, yeah. We might get inundated with calls after this, John. We won't, uh, <laughs> we won't disclose your contact details. Michelle, yeah. what do you think? <laughs> yes, yeah, so I'm pretty much along the same, the same lines as John. And, I mean, once again, when you have a scenario, you don't have all of the information, but I would 
very first up, um, ensure that all the facts are right, not that um, this person's not jumping to conclusions yeah. and assuming that, that this is what's happened, but that you know that this is actually happening before you actually approach the advisor. But I, was, I would suggest along the lines that John was saying uh, in terms of perhaps approaching them directly and just sort of saying, hey, look, this, this is a really big issue here and, um, you know, look, you, you need to, to get things sorted and do you need some help with it if you're able to provide some help or maybe refer them to somebody who, who could give them some, some help with that if they're prepared to accept it. I think um, maybe depending on how I would say that the advisor might also be swayed by if you were able to provide an example, look, hey, I don't want to see you being the next person, you know, that, that's out there in the media should should you get found out or you don't keep the right records, for example, John, like you mentioned, and, you know, putting it to them that way in that, you know, you're, you're speaking to them in their own best interest, you're not trying to make things difficult for them. And, yeah, if you're able to provide help, I think um, that's the first step. But uh, I think... Nobody really wants it to be um, called a dobber, but I, I think that hopefully you wouldn't have to get to that. Yeah, look, I think it's a live issue. I think, you know, I've interviewed, um, you know, uh, senior representatives from ASIC um, quite regularly over the last year or so and, you know, it's definitely the thing that keeps them up at night, um, you know, with all the banks leaving wealth and advisors uh, then kind of wondering where their new home is and many of them starting their own licence. Um, many of them don't start out with, you know, whole compliance, um, you, you know, um, uh, you know se sections or, or staff. So, you know, they start off in a quite a, quite a um, uh, you, know, a th you know, a thin budget. So I think that, um, you know, I think it's a really, really live issue. So I think it's... There are a lot of resources available too. So yeah. being able to, to point to where to find those resources and maybe um, gaining some assistance from the professional bodies as well. Yeah. But yeah, and it is a struggle. I mean, financial planners are just under so much pressure at the moment and the time that's involved in setting all of these things up. But I think you've got to invest in that, in, in that, side of things for the long term because if you don't you're not going you're not going to be sustainable and um if we come back to the reputation as well i mean you're not just damaging your own reputation but the reputation of the profession if, you, if you're not getting it right look uh great thanks it's been a, a, a fascinating um conversation and uh thank you both for your time michelle and john thank you yes thank you very interesting <laughs> Really enjoyed reading through those. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ethics and Professionalism podcast. A quick reminder that you can earn CPD points by visiting our website. If you'd like to submit a scenario, please send me an email for a chance to have it featured on an upcoming episode. In the meantime, please keep an eye on our channels to stay updated on future episodes.